and welcome to Engagement Express, the podcast series for HR engagement and internal communication professionals designed to give you tips and ideas on how to increase engagement in your organization. My name's Kate Siche and I'm a global internal communications consultant who's worked with many well-known global brands to support their colleague engagement strategies. Now, for episode 46, I'm really fortunate to be joined by someone who I'm proud to call a friend who I actually came across first on LinkedIn. Her name is Catherine Reed. Now, Catherine is an international sales and marketing consultant with over 25 years experience developing niche products in emerging markets. She helps small and medium companies to break through international barriers, creating successful entrepreneurs and a thriving global marketplace. Catherine firmly believes that business is done between people and therefore places her focus on building strong relationships that form a solid foundation for doing business. Welcome Catherine to Engagement Express podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to invite Catherine Reed to my podcast. Now I've been following Catherine for quite a while now on LinkedIn and her content is priceless, gold dust. And so I really invited her here today to talk about third parties and how we can effectively communicate with them if they're not part of the organization that you work for. So Catherine, it would be great if you could set the scene in regard to this topic. Thank you, Kate. It's also a real pleasure to be invited to be here today. And I've been listening to your podcast for the last year or so with great enjoyment, even though I'm not a traditional internal communication specialist. But as you've mentioned, working with third parties, I think many of us do this. And my experience has mostly been in the international field. So those third parties, they could be for example, a marketing agency that you're working with, they could be a franchisee of yours, or they could be, for example, an external and distributor of your products, where you actually need to motivate their teams to promote your products and your brands. But you don't actually have this kind of hierarchical control over what they're actually doing. So it creates this kind of disconnect between your company interests and their company interests, both of which are legitimate, but you have all the same, the responsibility of making sure that your interests are adequately represented and that can be quite a challenge. Yeah, I agree. I've worked with many third parties in regard to implementing technology, specifically internal communication channels like intranet, and it's a real nightmare because the firewall, security team, IT have usually no mechanism for including people who are not directly working for the organization into systems like Outlook, for example. So you're constantly relying on external tools to speak to them. And even when they're implementing, you know, there's always this sort of layer of distance between yourself and them in terms of what they can access and what you can access and what they can see and what you can see. So, yeah, it is always a real challenge. And if the change or transformation or the technology, which it usually is, is pivotal, then, you know, it becomes even more crucial that you give them access to these 
mechanisms to be able to do their job well and to be able to affect change in a positive way. So what's your experience of working with people who are not part of an organisation and how do you get them to understand your goals and objectives? I think I would say that one of the biggest challenges is avoiding the feeling that can arise of isolation that can come up because they feel that they're not being adequately included in your communication or they may be not being included at an early enough stage. And so you have two parties who potentially have really different communication and working styles. So from my side, it's always been very important right from the beginning to make sure that you've got the buy-in from the top of both organizations, because then you've got at least a basic understanding that you will at least try to do some kind of integration of systems so that mm. there will be as smooth a transfer of information as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that has to really be the first step, especially if those third parties are actually in overseas markets, either because you have a vendor, for example, who might be in a lower cost market or because you're working in those markets and you're selling in those environments, then you simply have different expectations of how leadership should look, how feedback culture is working, and you have all of these different cultural questions about managing motivation and managing conflicts. So if you don't get it right from the start, where you get this buy-in from the top, and then you proceed to really lead by example as to how you would like things to work in the partnership, then it can go wrong really quite quickly with a lot of resentment on both sides, which is actually not justified, but because nobody's talking about it, then it can fester quite quickly. Yeah, I think you're right. And this is such an interesting topic. You know, when you talk about the cultural differences, not just geographically, but also from a company perspective, and then you add into that the geographical differences and then the language barriers that might exist as well. You've got a real hot pot there. And having worked in, you know, multinational organisations for many years like yourself, you know, I know how difficult that is, you know, working with people even who work for the organisation, let alone third parties or suppliers. And you touched on an interesting point there about how people interact and the organisational culture and leadership style and sort of unspoken rules, I suppose, that people take for granted when they do work for an organisation. And when an external party is suddenly faced with that, they don't know how to necessarily work within the confines of that organisational culture. We all know that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it's so true. So I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, coming from the marketing and sales background that you do in regard to the values, behaviours, you know, the norms that organisations have and how important it is for third parties or suppliers to be able to understand them and respect them as opposed to resist them? I would say that if you want to have a successful partnership, those are things that you as a company really need to do your homework on and get a lot of clarity on for yourself before you go into any kind of third party relationship. Because you have to be clear 
about which of your values are absolute must-have values in a partner organization, whatever kind of partner organization that is, because it can be really difficult to work with, for example, a vendor who simply doesn't understand why, for example, organic food is such an integral part of your marketing process. If they simply see that as a marketing gag, let's say, rather than an attitude to life, then you have a complete misalignment on what may be basic company values that can lead to a lack of understanding and that can lead to them failing in the task that you're working with them to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wonder, do you have any rules or guidelines that you follow when trying to find a vendor that's aligned with your ambitions, uh, be it marketing, sales, you know, or, you know, product, etc. Is how straightforward is it or how complex is it on the flip side to find vendors, suppliers, third parties that actually get what it is you're trying to do? Or is it that it doesn't really matter that the best price will, whoever's got the lowest price will do? No, I think judging on a purely price-based decision is always going to be extremely risky, if not a disaster, simply because there'll always be somebody who can do it for cheaper. You know, you can always go somewhere and get somebody who'll say they can do it for cheaper, at least. Mm. So I think if you don't have this alignment on the values and you don't make it very clear up front what for you are must-haves and what for you are, let's say, nice-to-haves, then it can be really difficult to be successful together. And I think you can usually, if you're talking about translation or marketing agencies or PR agencies, you can see by looking at references of who they've worked with in the past, whether those companies are actually also companies who place value on values, if you like, and for whom value-based marketing is something that is important. There are certain companies, I mean, I'm sure that, let's say, if I see, for example, that a marketing company, if their main reference has been that they worked for Donald Trump, then probably they're not going to be the right kind of person to work with any clients of mine, you know? Right. And I think it's also got to trickle down from the top. It's no good just having on both sides of the equation. It's no good just having values in your mission statement. You've also got to live those values and your staff have also got to live those values because otherwise then it's just words on paper, isn't it? Yeah. And I've seen that many times before where you've got these beautiful values that are written down. They've got some, you know, beautiful visuals that they put on walls, etc., that allude to the values and talk about them very explicitly too. But, you know, when you see the behaviours and you feel the environment and the atmosphere, it isn't good. And it certainly doesn't align with the values as they're written down on paper. But, you know, all companies have the values, but it's often a mismatch between what you see in a on a day-to-day basis on what's written down. So, yeah, I would agree with you there. And, you know, with the emergence of, you know, this heavy, heavy emphasis on ESG, you know, environment, social governance, and, you know, all of these issues around climate change and, you know, social responsibility and equity, you know, and all of these things that have come to the fore in the last two years during the pandemic. 
I think, you know, companies have now changed. They're no longer, you know, looking at PR uh, companies or agencies or suppliers through the lens of financial, you know, benefits. So, you know, whoever is cheapest, as we spoke about earlier, they're thinking more, you know, who are these people dealing with? You know, how are they treating their employees? What are their values? And do they align with ours? But, you know, I always sort of think, I'm always quite sceptical about that approach because the thing for me is how far do you go? Because the supplier has a supplier has a supplier. And how would you know at the end of the day who's treating who well? Yep. I mean, that is exactly the point. And as long as there's no kind of, let's say, ISO type certification for all of these things where you would potentially rely on all of your suppliers having this certificate and they in turn rely on all of theirs having that certificate, then I think that to a certain extent, as I mentioned earlier, you have to decide for yourself what things are a complete no-go, what things have to be, and what are the things, well, if push comes to shove, then I can live without them, you know? Right. And I think that it's also really important that those values are very much in the course of your dealings with any kind of third party that you really over-communicate them. I think it was Eric Schmidt who wrote in his book, How Google Works, that usually for this kind of thing, you have to communicate 22 times at least before somebody takes that on board. And so if they're working in an external organization and potentially their mother tongue is a completely different one to yours, then you have to also consider that it might take more than 22 times to deliver your message in a way that is really kind of then self-explanatory for Mm. the people who are actually implementing your brand work in another place at third hand or at second hand. Exactly. And, you know, I've been to... It's so difficult. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) It is difficult. You're right. It is tricky because I was just thinking as you were talking then that, you know, when you go into an organisation, most people don't necessarily know all the values. They might know some of them, you know, the most prevalent or perhaps the most famous or the most promoted, but they don't usually know all of them. You know, typically you will get five or six values in my experience. And of those five and six, you'll usually get three that are rattled off immediately. You know, what are your values? Da, 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 da. And then they'll struggle, you know, with the last one or two. So let alone an external party, you know, getting them to understand what's important to you from a values perspective and the way you do things. And, you know, when I think of um, marketing and even well, sales less so, but more marketing, you know, I think of internal communications as internal marketing. So everyone understands the external marketers, four P's, and the approach that's taken there with an external audience. But, you know, when you look at your internal audience, is it not the same thing for me? You know, marketing should be the same internally as it is externally. But, you know, you don't have the budget, you don't have the resource, you don't usually have the bandwidth, the time. So it's interesting, isn't it? Well, internal comms is always seen as the poor cousin, should I say, to external marketing. Definitely. And it's always really difficult to introduce it into companies that haven't been used to thinking about it in that way. And I Mm. think that up until the pandemic, many companies 
who were smaller, they didn't actually consider internal communications in a systematic, structured way. They would think about their external marketing, perhaps in a very planned out, strategic way. But they had structures in place for their internal communications, but they were not maybe as streamlined and they were not maybe as thought through. They were just kind of had arisen because they happened that way rather than being consciously built for efficiency. At least my impression of a lot of continental European companies would be Mm. that it's that way. Right. Yeah. And I think you're right. Even to this day, you know, there's still this perception of internal communications being something other and not necessarily on the same level as external corporate communications or, or indeed marketing. And quite often internal communications will report into HR, but sometimes I've reported into marketing or corporate communications. It's less so marketing, but sometimes you get the connection there. And, and when you do, it's really good because you get that external lens to reflect back internally. And no one's blind, you know, everyone has access to what everyone else does externally. So why not just reflect that internally? perhaps through a different lens, but, you know, the same material um, worded differently, maybe for the internal audience. So, you know, I'm always sort of quite confused as to why organisations don't do that. It's strange, in my opinion. Do you typically work with larger organisations in your role as an expansion specialist or is it sort of SMEs you're working with? Mostly SMEs. I would say mostly medium-sized organizations. So they're usually ones who've actually made some kind of initial international expansion and who are potentially now looking to go a little bit further afield. So they're looking at the kind of exports, which let's say not within the EU. Right. And of course, in the last couple of months, then I've started also looking at helping a number of UK companies with their exports simply because they obviously now don't have that simple market access to the EU. So if you're looking at expanding into a third party market where you need to consider a completely different legal system, and I mean, HR systems are usually pretty different, even across the EU, HR systems and norms, especially can be very different. And I think it's important that there's somebody there who can say, well, you have to consider all of these cultural differences that are also then reflected in the legal framework that you're working with. I mean, if you have a daughter company in Romania or in China, they both have to have a kind of employee handbook by law that specifies things like traveling expenses and what you need to do if you want to ask for time off. So those are kind of small things that can suddenly become a big stumbling block if you don't actually take good care about them, I think. Mm, Employee handbooks. Oh, my God. That sends a shiver up my spine. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, have I seen some whoppers in my time. And I've never, ever have to say found an employee handbook of any use whatsoever is that just me I think it depends on what they are and how they're used I mean I would say that as with any kind of guideline for your third party if you're making 
a branding guideline or you're making a sales guideline, then it's also a similar kind of thing to having an employee handbook. Right. And so for me, the key challenge is, firstly, where are you going to store it? Because you need to have some kind of online repository for this information so that it can easily all be kept up to date. And it needs to be really things that are relevant and not just blah, blah, for the sake of putting something down on paper. Right, exactly. I've seen some good ones. I mean, I know that when I think of them, I think, you know, they can be done so much more creatively than they usually are. They typically, I don't see them anymore, to be honest with you. I don't know if they're really a thing anymore. You know, I feel like they've moved on companies from having employee handbooks. Maybe there is something somewhere, but they're not necessarily given to people who start in an organization as a mechanism to find out about how to do things. It's more, you know, the intranet or articles or, you know, pamphlets or, you know, something a bit more whizzy, whizzy wig for the employee to get their arms around the organization. So going back to the the SMEs that you typically work for, that's a real catch-all term and it's very generic. So when people think of SMEs, they sometimes think of very small companies and other people think of enterprise size. So what kind of number of employees are you talking about that you typically work with? I would say it depends a little bit because some of the companies that I'm working with, they don't actually have that many employees. Maybe they only have... 10 or 15 employees, but they have quite a large turnover. I think within the European Union, there are these two axes, if you like, of decision-making. The one side is the number of employees and the other side is the size of the turnover of a company. Right. So some of them are more, let's say, personnel intensive than others. I don't like that word, but, you know, some of them are more human resource intensive than others. That's also not any better, is it, as a vocabulary term? (laughs) Some of them have more employees than others to achieve the same turnover simply because it's a different kind of product. And so within Austria, anything that's under, I think, something like 40 million turnover is classified as an SME. Whereas I know that in the States, it can be bigger than that. Sometimes Germany often uses this word Mittelstand, which can include companies who are really huge I would say, but they're not listed on the stock market. Right. Um, Probably a family-owned company who could have several hundreds of millions in turnover. So I don't have any clients like that. (laughs) No. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when I think of, you know, when I think of the categories, SMEs, et cetera, enterprise, large organizations, I think of the number of employees. That's probably because of the work I do. And when you go to, for example, the top 100 list, the Times does in the UK of uh, companies, SMEs, they talk about the number of employees. So typically that's sort of like anything over 100, 150 makes its way into that. Mm -hmm. But there are some that are less, but usually you won't see that. So it's interesting that you've got the two sides, the number of employees and the turnover, which is interesting. And those companies that you're working with, are they that are looking to expand and may already have uh, done some expansion um, successfully or struggled perhaps? What would you say is their biggest challenge when it comes to you know working with third parties? I would say it's often the idea that they're not very clear themselves what it actually is that they need to transfer across into 
a foreign market. So often they haven't really got a clear international strategy and they haven't always done their homework as to, let's say, what their ideal market is in the country that they're now targeting. So they usually know this for their own markets and for maybe for some of their other export markets, but they perhaps haven't done that level of detailed market research for a new overseas market. And that has mm. become, I think, even more prevalent now in the last two years when people don't have that opportunity to just hop on an aeroplane and to go somewhere to visit a trade fair or to spend a couple of days in a market going around looking at how similar products to theirs or similar services to theirs are actually presented and sold in that market. Right. And we've all seen the disasters that happen, for example, when PR agencies or marketing agencies get it wrong, you know, in regards to presenting a particular part of the world or people from a particular part of the world and their culture without that background knowledge. I've started to change my mind. You know, we've had discussions about this on LinkedIn before where we've talked about people will typically think it's ignorance or lack of awareness or lack of research, as you've just outlined. But I'm beginning to think it's deliberate because there's so much resource out there. Yes, you can't necessarily hop on a plane as quickly as you used to be able to. But there's the Internet. <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, there's so many avenues to find out about the way people do things, the way people live, the way that different cultures work. So for me, I'm beginning to think that it's a deliberate thing when they present a particular group of people in a particular way that might be deemed as derogatory, but maybe gets them attention and gets them the sales in the demographic they're targeting. What are your thoughts? I think that there's, for certain companies, there is certainly an element of that, especially if they already have a certain level of sales. I don't think that most companies are looking to do that if you're looking at a smaller company who's looking to enter into a new market. Mm. But I do believe that there are a number of larger companies who feel like they've already got enough foothold in an individual market that they feel a little bit secure and that they think that by having some kind of provocative messaging that that will get them some free publicity let's say right exactly yeah and i think the this, same i'm thing. sure that there are companies who who do that deliberately because if you look at some of the gaffes that luxury brands have made mm. in various markets then i can't believe that nobody in the chain of command has said hello we need to flag this that this is a potential disaster or the other thing right. is that companies sometimes are so arrogant that they simply don't believe the people on the operative side of things who are telling them that that is a risk or that that is dangerous. They simply believe they're so full of themselves and their own importance in their own brand that they simply believe that doing it the way that they do it in France or the US or whichever country they happen to be at home in, if it's good enough for France or it's good enough mm. for the US, then it has to be good enough for, right, I don't exactly. know, for Nigeria, China or wherever too. And they don't yep. always accept that those markets 
just tick differently. They're not mm. bad or better. They're just different. Just different. Right. Right. That's the premise of international, you know, working. I describe myself as a nomad. I think we're similar in that respect. You know, I live in London, but maybe that's why I like living in London, because I feel like I can go anywhere within London because you can go to Chinatown or you can go to a you know specific area where they've got Turkish restaurants or Indian restaurants and, and on and on and on you know it's a real cosmopolitan place but yeah that's the basis of being in an international environment that you understand that there's a difference we're not all the same we don't act in the same way we don't have the same values we're not driven by the same cultural norms so it is pivotal to come at it with an open mind and say, well, actually, you know, I'm willing to listen and be corrected if I'm wrong. You have such great experience in the international space, you know, working with different companies and with suppliers and different products. What would you say are your tips for working in the international sphere? I've just outlined how I look at it. But how do you approach, you know, working with even companies, not necessarily third parties, but the companies who are your clients, for example, how do you approach them with the correct mindset? First of all, I try and learn as much as possible about the culture that they are living in or that they are based in, working in. And so from that point of thing, I tend to look at the points of how do they deal with expectations of leadership? How is their feedback culture? Of course, that can be either national or it can also be company specific. How do they manage conflicts as a national culture a little bit? How do they like to be persuaded? Because sometimes if I'm presenting something to somebody, for example, in France, they have this structure that they've learned in school that's like thesis, antithesis, and then at the end, synthesis. So if you build a presentation, they like you to bring your argument. Oh, your I've read about that, yeah. build it up. Yeah, yeah. I've read about that. They like that. you to build up how you arrived at a conclusion. Whereas right. if you're dealing, for example, in the UK, or especially in the US is much more extreme on that front they like you to give the conclusions in the first slide right up front and then explain afterwards how you arrived at it because if somebody's not listening anymore you know then at least they've got the main points of it or if I'm delivering a presentation in China then I make my slides much busier with a lot of small details on the slides which drives a European absolutely crazy because you can hardly read it but the Chinese love it (laughs) So I think that taking care of all of those points and making sure that you give people regular updates and have this kind of regular short check-in to see how the temperature is. You know, this concept of having like laser coaching. Well, I like to have this kind of laser consulting that's just very 15-minute sessions just to see where somebody is and to see how maybe a salesperson is doing or maybe how... A marketing department feels about it so that you can check the temperature without necessarily mm-hmm. spending a lot of time. And of course, time and attitudes to time are something that vary across cultures. I always have this <laughs> picture of that Salvador Dali 
painting in my head. What's it called? Oh, melting. I don't clock. remember. With the clocks. Yes, with the mm. melting clocks. Yeah. yeah. I always have this in my head when I'm thinking yeah. about international attitudes to time. Because if you tell an Egyptian that the meeting starts at 10, then the meeting is not going to start before 11. Right. And if you tell a German that the meeting starts at 10, then they're going to be there at 5 to 10, kind of pacing up and down, <laughs> waiting, right. for the, waiting for the Egyptian guy to arrive. Exactly. And those are the things exactly. where I think, those are the things where I think a lot of negativity can come up simply because mm. people have different perceptions of time, you know, or right. the American comes to the meeting and wants to get directly to work. And yeah. the Taiwanese guys come to the meeting and first of all, they would like to drink tea or mm. maybe coffee and have a little bit of relationship building or a Brazilian right. would like to come and, and do some relationship building before you get down to business. Right. And in total, the time you need is the same, but the order in which you do things is different. It's different, yeah. Pleasantries, so important. Actually important across the board, but perhaps others place more emphasis on it than others. And I think if you, I mean, the US is always quoted as this kind of very low context culture where they would just get down to the work. But what actually happens is that they start on the tasks and they build the relationship as they're going along. Mm -hmm. Whereas a Brazilian or an Asian usually will want to build the relationship first and then they go through the tasks much more quickly than they would do if you try to start out right away because they don't feel comfortable if you haven't already at least established some kind of common ground together. Mm. Yeah, it's so and important. So if you're working with, it is, and if you're working with teams, especially with external teams, then that's even more important to do. Yeah, you've got that extra layer of complexity in that they're external and then you've got the cultural differences as well. I mean, you know, we could just go on and on and on, couldn't we? There's time, there's just approach to work, there's all sorts going on, even food, you know, how you approach meal times, etc. It's um it's a really interesting one. You just reminded me of an incident that happened to me many years ago where I went to Paris to meet a colleague for a company I was working with at the time. And I was early. I turned up very early, actually, because my flight was early. And I arrived about, I think, say about four, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour early. And, you know, she said to me straight away that in France, being early is just as rude as being late. <laughs> uh, I was shocked yes, by I that. I was like, oh, my goodness. Wow. You know. And that's stuck in my head ever since. And, you know, I don't know if it's just a Parisian thing, but yeah. Also, to some extent. I mean, one of my favourites is one of these linguistic ones because I was originally a languages student. And I was once in a management training here in Austria and the trainer instructed us that one of the perfect ways to kind of divert our boss was to one of the good opening phrases was to say, with all due respect, and this would be a good introduction. And for me, it was perfect because for me, it gave me the opportunity that the person I was saying it to would see it as I was being polite and I was being a good mm -hmm. employee, whilst in actual fact, I was being a very kind of giving him a very 
British put down by saying yeah, with all due respect and actually meaning I think that the idea is completely rubbish. Nonsense. So, yeah. That's yeah. a very English thing, isn't it? A very British thing, isn't it? To say, with all due respect. I mean, when I hear that, I know that I'm going to get a tongue lashing of some kind. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we understand. Or when you talk to Yeah. Or when you talk to Scandinavians, for example, and you say to them, at least at the beginning of my career when I was in charge of Scandinavia, and you would say, That's interesting. And they would take it at face value. <laughs> and <laughs> That's that, uh, that is not quite what was meant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. We have our ways, don't we, of saying certain things that and meaning others and all of these things, yeah, impact communication greatly. And as I said, you know, we could go on and on and on. And it's fascinating talking to you. I always learn so much when I do speak to you and reading your posts. And I would recommend anyone on LinkedIn, even you know, though you're not in internal communications, a lot of what you share does actually resonate and is relevant to internal communications. So I thank you so much for your time today. And, you know, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to speaking to you and working with you further in the future. Thank you, Kate. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you as always. <laughs>